Good to be here. And uh, let's turn, if you're following along in your Bible, to Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9. Our sermon text today will be verses 9 through 20. So if you'll be following along with us, that's where to turn. Isaiah 44, 9 to 20. And we want to extend a special welcome to Ryder Redman, who's here visiting us, and Ryder's parents, of course, uh, Lindsay and Dave. Good to have you here. Of course, the first Stover grandchild who was born four weeks ago. It's such a delight to get to meet Ryder. And um, welcome. Getting big. Still small. But anyway, um, let me read our text and pray for God's blessing, and then we'll go ahead and go from there. This is Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with the hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking these words of truth, these words of clarity, this light from heaven that illuminates our souls and illuminates a universal human problem. We pray and trust you to give us insight by your Spirit. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and make our hearts sensitive to what you are saying in this text. I pray for your spirit to give me clarity and boldness and power 
and faithfulness to what you are saying. Please work on our hearts in all the various ways that you know each of us needs. Please shepherd our souls. And like a garden here, as we are gathered together and we are going to receive your word like rain that nourishes us, we pray that we would grow up and that you would multiply among us faith and righteousness and praise for you. All to the end that Jesus would be exalted in our midst. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's imagine that we are all conquered by a foreign power. And we're taken away forcefully from our homes. And we are brought into that power's land to be resettled there. At first, everything would be shocking. It would be foreign. It would take us a while just to settle in and get used to the fact that this is our new home. And then we would start slowly developing some new routines and slowly returning to some sense of normalcy in this new place. And then as time went on, we would slowly begin the long process of assimilation, which would take years, decades, even generations. We would start eating like our new neighbors. We would gradually start dressing like them. We would eventually start speaking their language. And then as time went on, we would start adopting even even deeper levels of assimilation, adopting their priorities, their values, their unspoken assumptions about life. We would start learning their cultural stories and considering them our own. And likely as not, some among our company of exiles would eventually start practicing the religion that dominates that land. Now, it's probably no mystery to you at this point that the thought experiment here is to get us thinking about Israel's experience in exile. If you've been with us, you know, in Isaiah, this is what will happen to them. Isaiah has already told them they'll be taken away by the conquering Babylonians. But spiritually speaking, it's also relevant to us because the New Testament tells the church That we now, in this era of salvation history, we are exiles and sojourners in the world. We are inhabitants of a different age, the future. And of a different realm, the heavenly one. That is our home. The cross of Christ has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, which makes us strangers today in the world in which we live. We live in a contrary world that's always pulling us in a different direction toward its values. So in that sense, we are in the same boat as Israel is anticipating as they will be in Babylon, in exile. So considering this last matter that I mentioned, that of worship, think about worship in exile. Isaiah's original audience, as we can imagine that they would be going off into exile, they will face a threefold temptation to worship false gods. Three aspects of temptation to worship false gods in Babylon. The first is, pagan Babylon will have beaten them. And to ancient Near Eastern people, to be defeated was to have your gods proved inferior to the gods of the victors. So, will Israel fall into that pattern of thinking? Has Yahweh been vanquished by the gods of Babylon? Are they better? The second aspect of temptation would be the peer pressure that they would face there to be a minority people in a strange land. 
devoted to Yahweh alone, in a place that's saturated with false gods and false worship, that'll be an uphill battle. How will they continue to face their neighbors' inquisitive, uh, probing, or even their hostility, who just can't understand why the Jews do not take part in their religion? The third aspect of their temptation is more general. Because of our fallen nature into sin, idolatry will always be nipping at our heels. Just as the reformer John Calvin famously called the human heart an idol factory. And Israel's own history has shown that they are sadly vulnerable to this error. What about us exiles? Well, we know that in our cultural context, the appealing idols are not statues of wood and stone. They don't have names, personal names like gods. But the Bible gives within its pages an expansive definition of idolatry. You may have heard Paul making that quick connection in our scripture reading in Colossians 3.5 when he says covetousness, which is idolatry. There's something going on in the heart in covetousness that is the same thing that these ancient Near Eastern people were doing in worshiping their false gods. Now we don't tend to think of our idols as idols, but that's what they are. If we follow the argument through from where we started last week, verse 6, we can see, by contrast with the Lord, that our idols are the things that we trust. Just as in verse 8, he is called a rock. He says, is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. Our God is the thing that we rest in and seek refuge from. And our gods are often exposed by our fears. Our hearts, yes, are still idol factories. Just as one author put it so long ago, what we place our confidence in for deliverance, that we make a God of. Among us today, we could relate to many areas of temptation to idolatry. If we each wrote a list for ourselves, there would be many things that would come up. Career, education, family, relationship, relationships, politics, health, hobbies. However, throughout this sermon, I'm going to focus on a big three that I believe are especially pervasive and deadly. And the acronym is SMP. Sex, money, and phones. You may have thought I was going to say power, but come on. Phones. In view of these temptations, what does God have to say to us today? So kids... When you're on your way home from church and your parents ask you what was the sermon about, this is what you're going to tell them, okay? Trust the Lord, not the shameful deception of idols. Trust the Lord, not the shameful deception of idols. That's God's message for us today. Now, this text is saturated with irony. So the way that we'll organize it is that we will walk through and examine four ironies of idols, for ironies of idols. The first one is in verses 9 through 11. Though popular, they're profitless. Though popular, they're profitless. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame and the craftsmen are only human 
Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Now these three verses introduce the topic of idols and confront the imaginary, the the hypothetical idol maker and declare God's verdict on the whole enterprise from the start. Right away, verse 9 shows us that we are contrasting idols with the Lord Yahweh and His relationship to His covenant people. Because in verse 8, we saw that He calls them, My witnesses. Israel, His covenant people, are His witnesses. They're His representatives in the world. They're the ones who are positioned to see His work in the world, His powerful works, and to testify of Him to others. So now in verse 9, we hear that we are talking about the witnesses of the false gods. It's the other side of the coin from last week's argument. There we saw that the Lord is the first and the last. He is the one who transcends all else and exists above all else on his own plane. And he rules history all by himself, so he alone can be trusted without fear. So in view of that argument, today's passage takes it a step further and says, well, what are we to make then of the worship of other gods? Or as he asked back in 40 verse 18, to whom will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Who can stand up next to this God? And the verdict in verses 9 and 10 is direct. The people who make these gods are nothing. That's a word meaning empty. And as one author explains, quote, to fashion an idol proves that the maker has no sense of meaning and purpose in the world and no chance of achieving it, end quote. Tragically, he has lost sight of reality. He has lost sight of meaning. Two roots of worship are delight and desire. We worship what we delight in ultimately, and when we worship, we think that we will gain something. Think about the Lord. We come to the Lord worshiping Him, delighting in Him, and seeing Him as our treasure. We, we see that there is profit. It's not crass profit like we're just trying to get something out of God, but in coming to Him, we see there is great reward. But the false gods are empty. They can't hold up the weight of His people's delight, and they give no profit or gain. So verse 11 shows us a scene. The idol makers and all his companions, who seem to be the other idol worshipers along with him, are gathered together. They stand forth as though for a showdown. God is saying, go ahead and gather your strength. Gather all of you together to take your stand. What is the result? Terror and shame. Remember the background. God is preparing Israel for exile in a land where they will face mountains of peer pressure and cultural inertia, not to mention the treachery of their own human hearts that will all be pulling them toward idolatry. And God is anticipating this argument. How could idolatry be so wrong if so many people are doing it? And so the answer is very simple here. All the strength, all the numbers in the world cannot stand up to the Lord's coming judgment. Now, in the bygone world of street gangs that were romanticized in West Side Story back in the old days, gangs would would gather up for a brawl, right? What would they bring? They'd bring their switchblades and their bike chains, and they'd be ready to rumble. Now, these are tough guys. This is a whole crowd of tough guys. I wouldn't want to have to face a group like that. But imagine showing up with a group like that for a nuclear war. 
That's the kind of power mismatch we're talking about here. Go ahead and gather up your crew. Let's see what happens. The Lord will utterly expose their charade. And so the result of delighting in profitless idols is shame. So right off the bat, God is issuing to us, his people, a warning. And he's issuing us a word of conviction. Don't think that we're safe just because we're going along with the world in its idolatrous ways. Don't think that by following the stream of what the world is doing that we have any safety. We feel that way. It feels normal. It feels safe. That's the deception. And one reason I chose to highlight sex, money, and phones is that these gods of our age are nearly universal in their appeal. We are a shockingly, shamefully self-indulgent society when it comes to sexual pleasure. I truly think that even as Christians are so dulled to it and so immune to it, we have no clue how decadent this culture is in this regard. The most appalling perversions are openly accepted wherever you turn. Pornography, cohabitation, fornication, homosexuality. And it's similar with wealth and possessions. We have the highest material standard of living probably in the history of the world, at least for a great country like ours, a a large populace. And yet we keep finding more and more things that we aspire to obtain and feel we need. We are swimming in a stream of incredible wealth and luxury. And our surrounding world has created a reality distortion field that warps our sense of normalcy and need. And obtaining, 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 consuming endlessly is the spirit of our age. And with our phones, I I really mean all of our connected devices. The phones seem to kind of be the epicenter of it. And of course, it's not the physical device, but it's all the myriad ways that it connects us with sources where we think we'll find life and safety. And just like sex and just like money, our digital connectivity is a good thing. It's a gift from God that we can use with benefit. But the problem is that over and over again, the spirit of our age is to find life in these waterless desert places. So, just like the people of Israel facing exile, so we in exile are in a land surrounded by a current of idolatry. And all the people in the world pursuing a lie doesn't make it true. And all the people in the world pursuing emptiness doesn't give it any substance. It's just multiplied disappointment when the day of truth comes. So that's the first irony of idolatry. The second in verses 12 to 14 is this. Though man's delight, they're man-made. Though man's delight, they are man-made. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He, ooh, sorry. Pardon me. Um, <clears throat> sorry. He shapes it with a plane and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Now, verses 12 to 17 paint 
some graphic scenes about the idol maker at work. So the first three of these verses, what I just read, focus on the irony of the fact that these men are trusting gods that they themselves have made. Now, this should be the first alarm bell that it's not going to go well. Okay, So this hyper-descriptive account in verses 12 to 14 pictures first in verse 12 a smith working with a metal, then in verse 13 a woodworker, and then finally in verse 14 it traces the process back to the forest where the wood was sourced. And the point of all this detail is to emphasize the ingenuity and skill and long-term persistence of man. However, on the other hand, As creatures, these men are limited and dependent beings. So the smith forgets to eat lunch and drink water, and what happens? He gets tired. He gets thirsty. And in verse 14, even the trees where the idols come from are dependent creatures. They survive on the rain that falls from the sky. But for an especially devastating attack against the idols, I want to focus our attention on the end of verse 13. This is very important. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. Now, if you're familiar with Genesis 1, you know that in the beginning, God made man, male and female, in his own image. Humankind is a little flesh and blood statue of the immaterial God. But now in this grotesque parody of creation, man, the image of God, turns around and remakes a new God in his own image. Now, this image, Isaiah concedes, is a beautiful one. Man is an amazing and wonderful creature. Our own text bears witness to this. Look at the skill, the craftsmanship, the persistence and imagination and industry that our race is capable of. We can take on, it's amazing how we can take on such long-term projects and make investments that won't return any profit for multiple decades. Uh, We can clone organisms. We can split atoms. We can compose symphonies and and write soul-stirring works of literature. We are indeed beautiful, capable creatures. But we're copies. We're reflections. We are simplified icons of God himself. So the heart of idolatry is this reversal here in verse 13. Man, who's made in the image of God, takes his own image, cuts God off from the top, and makes a derivative copy of himself and calls that God. Idolatry, in other words, is man's self-deification. Man making himself God. And every one of the idols that tempt us, somewhere lurking behind the scenes, we never see it this way, Behind the veil, there's some idealized image of man that we're pursuing. There's some way that we're exalting man above all. Take sexual sin. It's the deification of physical pleasure. We take this one good thing that God has built into us, and we cut away God, and we put that on the shrine, and we bow down to it. Man, as a being of pleasure, becomes our new God. In a way, we make ourselves our own God. Now, some of us might serve this God with a ritual, staring into a computer screen in the dark of night. Or we might serve it in other ways. Consider the sexual sins of homosexuality and transgenderism. Now, these two things are distinct. 
But the core of both is the deification of man. We look inside ourselves and we examine our feelings and we study our orientation and our secret inner nature and then we declare that to be the reality. So now this self-image shapes our behavior. It shapes our public identity. It shapes our expectation of how others will treat us. And it even reshapes the very structure of the most basic social institutions. It is madness. Nature itself teaches so very clearly that God made marriage and sex for one man and one woman who perfectly complement each other in God's design. Nature itself teaches so very clearly that the obvious maleness and femaleness of our bodies declares the very good way that God has gendered us. But when man looks inward to himself as the plumb line of reality, then we turn to darkness and we deny the obvious reality of nature. And all, it's not just these two forms, all forms of sexual perversion and sexual sin do this in one way or another. We make ourselves God. God is the standard of how man ought to be. Man is not the standard of how God ought to be. The folly of trading a copy for the original, it defies description. Now, nowadays we keep our music in digital files which can be copied without any loss of quality. But I want you to go back a generation or more to the day of cassettes. Now you may remember with copying cassettes that each link in the chain brings about a further degradation of quality. You would record a song you liked off the radio and then maybe you'd record that and give that to your friend and it gets worse and worse. Imagine you're living in the day of cassettes and a world-class symphony orchestra is coming to town and they're going to play for a few nights. Now you have tickets for the second night but the first night's performance gets recorded. And somebody gets a hold of the recording and copies it. And suddenly, bootlegged copies of that first night's performance are getting all around town. And you get your hands on one of these copies. It's a copy of a copy. And you're excited. And you, you eagerly start listening. And you are so entranced with this fuzzy recording that you bring your Walkman to the concert hall. And that night, right, right when the orchestra starts to play, what do you do? You pop on your noise-canceling headphones and you plug them into your Walkman and you start listening to that ripped-off recording while the real thing is right in front of you. Friends, that is what it's like to worship a man-imaged God. So, I just teased this out for certain aspects of sexual sin, but this text is asking in so many other ways it could look, in what way does our false worship display the deification of man, making man into God? And for each of us in our hearts, this is the work that God's calling us to do. For every idol that tempts us to ask myself, how is this idol, a deif- how is man being deified here? How am I making myself or some other man or woman God? With money and possessions, there might be some mental conception of wealth that compels us. This ideal, the person that we want to be, has all the desirable stuff and the comfort and the perfectly tailored life to his desires. That is the deified man that we're pursuing. We're not going to craft or build or reason our way up to God. When we try, all we manage to do is degrade ourselves. We just dig downward. Yes, we are skillful and enterprising and very capable creatures, but we are 
creatures. We are derived. We're cassette tape copies of a majestic symphony. Friends, let's resolve that we'll always let God be the plumb line of reality, not ourselves. He's the maker, not us. We're the image. He's the original. So that's the second irony about idols. The third is in verses 15 to 17. Though worshipped, they're wooden. Though worshipped, they're wooden. He writes, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over, that, over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. So after verse 14 took us into the woods where the tree comes from, this three verses then kind of pivot on that and focus on the materials that these gods are made of. And the great irony here is that the same stuff that forms the gods is also put to the most common possible use. Now, there are many different uses we have for wood, and there is a scale of nobility or dignity. Some fine woods will end up as high-end furniture in an attorney's office. Some of the more medium quality woods will end up maybe as our furniture in our homes. And the lower end of that would be like the particle board IKEA furniture. Not hating on IKEA, but it's not the highest quality. Somewhere down lower we have the wood that that gets turned into chopsticks or popsicle sticks, right? But the very basis use for wood is firewood. And you can burn almost anything if it's dry. An idolater would think that a god is the noblest possible use for a block of wood. And the fire would be clearly the very least dignified use. So here's the great irony of these verses. Material from the same tree goes to both purposes. It seems arbitrary. You just divide it up and you put one to the fire and you worship the other. Now, what's more, if we remember the verdict from verse 10, that the gods are profitable for nothing, then we're led to the conclusion that the only profit and use that this person derives from this tree is the part that he burned. That was the only part that was put to any good use. He got some warmth out of it. He got to cook a meal. In verse 17, once he's built the god, he does what we always do to our gods. He worships it. He prays to it. He seeks, says, you save me. He seeks salvation and safety from his God. This is yet another demonstration of what we saw last week, that seeking safety is a key aspect of our worship, which is why when the Lord clears the field and says, I'm the first and the last, the takeaway is fear not. Our sense of safety is tied very intimately to our worship. Now, at this point, some have accused Isaiah of misunderstanding paganism, misunderstanding idolatry. He's got it all wrong, they say. It's not that pagans worship the physical object itself as though that were the god. No, the statue was a representation of a god. It was a tangible channel through whom their worship and veneration and devotion reached the god. It just represented the god. Is this a a straw man? Well, these people do raise a fair point. That is truly how ancient Near Eastern people thought about idols. The idol was just a representation of the God. 
But you'll find that throughout the Old Testament, whenever the authors of the Old Testament are engaging with idolatry, which they do often, the Bible authors never recognize this distinction as meaningful. And the reason can't be that the prophets misunderstood how idolatry worked. This is a universal phenomenon in their culture. If you read the prophets, you know that it was happening all around them among God's people. You see, what what Isaiah is doing is satirizing the worldview that that underlies idolatry. It's actually a, a very sophisticated satire here. Pagan worship comes from a view of reality in which the gods are made of the same kind of stuff as us. They're basically just super creatures. They're greater in magnitude or greater in quality or purity than us, but they're not categorically different than us. Actually, what lies behind pagan polytheism, which is a belief in many gods, is pantheism, which is a view that the divine is inseparably merged with the the, the natural order. And so the gods are really of the same category as us. One author describes it like this, quote, non-biblical religions insist, and this is present tense, by the way, paganism is not dead. And as our society secularizes, this is what's coming to the fore. Anyway, Non-biblical religions insist that supreme power in the universe is coterminous with the universe, is inherent in it, and does not exist apart from it. End quote. Some big words there. But in other words, God is in the universe. And so in a sense, the whole universe is God. That's the worldview here. And it's precisely that view of reality that Isaiah is attacking. In the pagan thinking, the tree and the God... Maybe they're not identical, but they're ultimately not disconnected. They're tied together in a very problematic way. And so the question will be, and we've raised this question in previous texts, when we've seen the Lord drilling home His transcendent sovereign rule, the question is, will we put our trust in the created order or in the Creator? That is the very question before us. Have we also fallen for the lie that created things are able to transcend their created status and actually save us, fellow creatures. As I've said before, I've used this this analogy of a river and all created things are floating along with us in a stream of history. They participate, but they don't set the course. And this means that created things can't rescue us from the currents that exist in the stream. We need something grounded from the outside. Imagine that you're trying to wade through, there's a flood and you're trying to wade through a surging stream and suddenly you get swept off your feet into the current. This would be very frightening. You're panicking. And and you think, I have to get a hold of something to pull myself out. But you have to make sure that the thing you grab isn't also something that's floating along with you. You can't pull yourself up by something else that's floating in the current. You need something anchored to solid earth. And you may just as well grab some random piece of flotsam in the river with you and try to pull yourself up that way as seek salvation from created things. So again, just like last week, the word for us today is to trust the Lord alone because He alone is our rock. We heard that in verse 8. And to fear the Lord alone so that when fearing Him, we have nothing else to fear. That's why He said there, fear not. Can you imagine how foolish and how devastated and disappointed this idol maker will feel 
when God's judgment exposes his works and puts him to shame. That scene we saw in verse 11, can you imagine how he'll feel? Everything he trusted will evaporate into nothing. But the Lord's people can say to him with confidence the words of Psalm 25.3, None who wait for you shall be put to shame. We have a solid rock. And just as I earlier acknowledged that we often fail to see our idols as idols, so we often fail to detect the ways that our idols are attracting our trust and the ways that they're promising to deliver us from our, fear, our fears. How about our phones? I've mentioned our phones. Again, it could be any connected device. And again, it's not the device and the technology that's bad. It's the myriad ways that we abuse it by seeking escape in it. Maybe we check in too much because we're anxiously doom scrolling to see all the crazy things happening in the world around us in the news. It's an expression of fear. Maybe we check it compulsively because we're bored with the responsibilities and the few ordinary relationships that God has put right in front of us. And we crave the engagement and approval of a wider horizon of people out there in the world. Maybe we stare at it incessantly because we're just afraid to sit alone in the quiet with our own thoughts. We're afraid of what we'll find. Or it's the cheap thrill of this endless superficial entertainment that kind of helps paper over what may be otherwise a very dulled or depressed existence. Whatever the case, it takes spiritual discernment to identify how am I trying to draw life and salvation How am I trying to avoid my fears or be protected through these created things instead of the Lord? And this leads right into our next and final irony of idols in verses 18 to 20. Though blatant, they are blinding. Though blatant, they're blinding. He says, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burn in the fire. I also bake bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? For this section, imagine Isaiah banging his forehead against the wall. How on earth do these people not Get it. That spiritual discernment that I just mentioned, which is required to understand the folly of how we seek spiritual life from created things, that is a discernment that these idolaters entirely lack. In verse 18, the intellectual capacity of idolaters has gone haywire. He uses these terms of eyes and hearts that don't function as they're supposed to. False Gods make otherwise intelligent people senseless. The psalmist prays in Psalm 36 verse 9 to the Lord, In your light do we see light. And those who reject the Lord can know and understand a lot of things, but in ultimate matters, in terms of spiritual discernment, they are completely in the dark. One of the most important passages in Isaiah is in his commissioning scene in chapter 6. And these two very key verses, Isaiah 6 verses 9 and 10, the Lord is commissioning Isaiah the prophet 
And he said an amazing thing there that's being echoed here. He said that as a result of Isaiah's prophetic ministry, one of the results would be dulling the people's hearts and deafening the people's ears and blinding the people's eyes. Now, these are all metaphors for spiritual understanding. And so for this reason, the Lord shockingly commissioned Isaiah to be a means of hardening and blinding those who were in sin. I believe the he in verse 18 is the Lord himself. But on the other hand, in verse 20, the problem is blamed on the sinner's deluded heart, which has led him astray. There seems to be kind of a Romans 1 type pattern. You can read about it starting in Romans 1 verse 18. There's this hardening that goes through cycles where man has turned away from God to worship the creation And so God has turned man over progressively into more and more darkness. And so the rut just keeps getting deeper and deeper. It seems to be the case here with the idolaters. What is it that the idolaters can't see? Well, it's obvious. Verse 19 summarizes. It's the thing we read about in the last point. The fact that the same wood was both burned and worshipped. These two things are right next to each other and he just can't see it. Because false gods are continuous with nature, it should be obvious to all. They can't save or profit us. They're creatures like us. We need a transcendent God. We need the creator of all. The one who alone shapes history and upholds all things by his mighty hand. Now nature teaches these things clearly enough. And the Bible teaches them with even greater clarity. But to turn away from our Creator is to turn away not only into moral darkness, but into intellectual darkness, in the darkness of our minds and our thinking. And so in verse 20, he's feeding on ashes. This is the material, of course, at the bottom of his fire pit. After he has his barbecue, right? he uh, he bakes his bread and he roasts his meat. What's left at the bottom of that burned half the tree? It's ashes. He's saying, that's the same stuff you're trusting and adoring. You may as well eat those ashes and try to get nourishment from them. It is nothing but emptiness. You want to talk about empty calories. It takes a healthy dose of self-suspicion to see through this kind of delusion. And commentator Matthew Henry writes, self-suspicion is the first step towards self-deliverance. Now by self-deliverance, what, what Henry and what verse 20 are talking about is repentance. It's returning to the Lord. And sadly, the hard-boiled idolater here cannot do it. His mind is darkened. The good news for us is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we can do it. And Christian, you and I have the Spirit of God indwelling us. And this doesn't mean that we don't fall into idolatry. This doesn't mean that we don't have inconsistencies with reality and hypocrisies in our lives. But it means that God is doing a work to renew our minds through his word. And he's progressively giving us more and more insight into these hidden hypocrisies and contradictions in our souls. So does your life exhibit the kind of sober self-criticism that recognizes the futility of your false worship? We can often see this so clearly in others. That's kind of the, the, the device here, the literary device of the text. Look how silly it is when this guy's doing it. We've all seen areas where sin makes others seem bizarrely irrational. But of course, it's so much harder to see it in ourselves. How would a person from an alien culture view your life rituals? 
If Isaiah were watching you and writing a narrative of your daily life, would he be able to point out anything ridiculous, futile, or idolatrous, which you yourself, in your mind, you have a great rationalization for? He spends hours a day hunched over this little bright box, even well past the time when he should be sleeping. He picks it up ten times an hour. He even sneaks glances at it when his family members are talking to him. I'm talking about myself here. Or what if the observer got closer and looked at the contents of the screen? Would pornography or online retail therapy receive a vivid description? This morning, the Lord would have us to examine our hearts humbly for traces of this kind of futile self-worship. Look at your habits. Look at your practices. Look at your use of time. Look at your daily rituals. And more importantly, look at the activity of your heart while you're doing these things. What is happening in the areas of fear and trust? And also, the ease of self-deception here, I believe, forms another great argument for the church. Because we need brothers and sisters in the Lord to lovingly prod and ask uncomfortable questions, to have an Isianic role here of going, this seems a little peculiar. Now, certainly we would want to do so wisely, leading with questions and trying to understand. But there's a need for other brothers and sisters to put their eyes on our lives and sometimes to correct with gentle firmness. We need one another. We need the burden-bearing and foot-washing ministry Christ has called us to do for one another. So we trust the Lord, not the shameful deception of idols. Idols only only end in shame. They disappoint us. They have no profit. They don't satisfy our desires. They represent a weak attempt to deify ourselves. They're continuous with nature, so they don't rule over nature. They can't shape history. And to pursue them makes us ignorant and inconsistent and foolish. But here's the best part. The Bible tells us that we don't need to make a cheap knockoff image of man and call it God. Because God has sent himself, has has himself sent a man who is his own perfect image. He has sent Jesus, whom Hebrews 1.3 calls the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He has sent Jesus, whom Colossians 1.15 calls the image of the invisible God. He sent Jesus, whom John 1.14 says is the eternal and personal word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is the beautiful news for us idolaters. Instead of trying to build and craft our way up to God or turn ourselves into God's, God has reached down to us in Jesus, who in Isaiah 53.1 is called the arm of Yahweh, the arm reaching down from heaven to take hold of us, to save us. He grants forgiveness and renewal and eternal safekeeping to all who put their trust in him and none who wait for him will be put to shame. The worst sins, the most blatant idolatries, the most treacherous betrayals of God's deity He casts to the bottom of the sea in his grace and mercy. Fear not, nor be afraid. Is there a God besides me? Let's pray. Father, we 
agree with you, we confess joyfully that you are the only God, the first and the last. We look to Christ who is your image and we see you and we adore you. We see fullness of grace and truth. And yet, you've stung our consciences. You've shown us contradictions and hypocrisy. You've shown us idolatry. We pray that you would search our hearts and know us and try our inward thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in us and lead us to the way everlasting. We thank you for the abundance of your mercy and grace won through the cross of Christ so that we can indeed find rescue from this trap. We can indeed find true life and we can indeed find the rock. There is no other. We pray that every soul in this room would know this hope, would know you in this way and turn away from the darkness of idols. Some for the first time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.